I would ask you to turn in your Bibles uh, this morning to the 10th chapter of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, uh, second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And uh, we come into a new section of the letter. It's the third of the major sections of the letter. And it's an interesting way in which Paul structures uh, the letter. Uh, that is, in chapters uh, 1 to 7, his main concern would seem to win the Corinthians to himself um, and to do so in uh, ways of rehearsing the past experience he's had with them, the painful visit he made to them the sorrowful letter he wrote to them and uh, then all bringing it to the place where he is filled with a sense of relief and joy to know that at the end of Titus's ministry to them uh, he had won them back to himself. And so at that point, he's, he's certainly hopeful uh, when he writes this letter and he goes over this material to, just to affirm, first of all, his apostolic authority uh, and uh, this, the importance of their recognizing him as their apostle and um, um, you know, the importance of standing clear of uh, anything that would impede uh, a wholesome uh, relationship with them. Uh, they ought to be able to trust him because of uh, his, the fruits of his labors, because of the love of his heart, um, because of his honorable intentions, because he's a man who operates conscientiously and not as the many who seek to make merchandise of the word of God. He makes all these appeals to them. At the end of the day, there is this sense that he's won them back. But that whole section really deals with, uh, with Paul and the Corinthians. winning them back to himself and having his status or place in their hearts and in their lives as their apostles being um, fully uh, manifested in the midst of all the uh, problems and troubles and stresses upon the relationship he's had with them uh, through the the years um, that that would be restored that relationship that he would have with them would be restored and then in chapters uh, 10 to 13 what Paul does there is he seems to take on um, the troublemakers, the people in the church at Corinth who had been used of the devil, used of Satan, to turn the hearts of the Corinthians away from him. Um, these false apostles, he calls them, or these super apostles, he calls them, in terms of their estimation of themselves. They were self-promoters and they were looking to uh, find any weakness in Paul to criticize him and to um, cause the Corinthians not to think well of him. And so uh, they're not really at the forefront. They're in the background through all this section. Uh, these uh, opponents um, that he deals with here in this section are in the background. And he may allude to them, but he doesn't really state anything about them expressly and overtly. But in this section, there's face-to-face -face confrontation. That's what you have. Is you have face-to-face -face confrontation um, with these opponents, with these people that are the troublemakers. He's calling them out. And he's, uh, he's taking off the gloves and he's addressing the problem people in the congregation. Um, and all of this is to the end, again, of ensuring the spiritual well-being of this congregation and their part in the overall 
work that Paul was given as a as an apostle to, uh, as an apostle to the Gentiles. Um, and again, he's um, he's concerned. He's going to mention it in chapter ten that they might be in some ways instrumental for his. Uh, uh, more far-reaching endeavors to bring the gospel to other places. Maybe he's thinking in his mind about going to Spain that he mentions to the church in Rome in chapter 15 of the book of Romans. Um, and uh, that they would have a part in it. That they would be his partners in the gospel. Um, and then also they would be partners with the offering that he's bringing to the needy saints in Jerusalem. Which is an interesting thing. That that's the concern that comes in the middle in chapters 8 and 9. In the middle, there is the benevolence ministry to the to Jerusalem, or the collection to Jerusalem, to the needy saints there. And, you know, when you think of the structure of it, you have um, the problems, Paul and the Corinthians, that begins the letter, Paul and the opponents that ends the letter, that smack dab in the middle is collection of monies to the saints. And I think that seems to highlight the importance of that ministry in Paul's mind. Yes, he wants the Corinthians to be involved in further gospel work that he would do, which is what we think is the be-all and end-all of church life. Get the gospel out, get the gospel out, get the gospel out. And I don't mean to in any way denigrate the idea of getting the gospel out. That's, that's of great importance. That's of central importance to the church's well-being. But really no less than the reality that the gospel produces fruit-bearing believers who give of their substance for gospel ends and gospel purposes and part of that is the needy saints is love to the brethren the paramount in Jesus mind when he is leaving his disciples we mentioned it a bit this morning in the morning message is uh, a new commandment I give to you what's the new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you it's the paramount uh, it's the paramount nature of love the centrality of love in the lives of God's people, a love that would cause the people of God to dig deep for the needy saints of Jerusalem. Because we love them. We love one another as Christ has loved us. Christ has loved the Jerusalem saints. They're going through a time of great need. So we're going to demonstrate our love, even given out of our poverty, like the Macedonians give, gave, giving as Jesus gave when he was rich, becoming poor for our sakes. Really central to the letter is that Paul is concerned to be on the rights with the Corinthians personally and to have the enemies have less of an influence so that such things as benevolence ministries can be pursued with the Corinthians being wholeheartedly on board. And not saying, well, that's Paul's thing and we don't like Paul, so we're not going to be doing it. <laughs> we're opting out of, of an important uh, uh, demonstration of the unity of the church, of the love of the Gentile um, churches to their Jerusalem, really, uh, fathers in the faith who, through whom the gospel came to them. I mean, all those things are bound up in what Paul's doing with this benevolence ministry. And so it just highlights the importance of what sometimes we put on the back burner. And we put, well, it's a nice thing if we can do, if we can do it, if we have a, a great deal of overflow. No, Paul sees that as an important thing. And he makes it central to the second Corinthian letter.
So that's what I wanted to tell you with regard to the structure. I just think it's an interesting way that Paul fashions it. Two whole chapters giving it, and really in the middle, thematically, of the epistle. Right in the middle of Paul looking to get the church restored to himself and then taking on the troublemakers uh, um, directly. And in the middle of that, he places the um, ministry to the saints of, 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 of um, compassion and the, and the collection that he was taking up for them. Okay, well, let's uh, begin to look at the final section of the letter, uh, beginning in chapter 10 and through chapter 13, uh, where Paul addresses the opponents uh, with his face-to-face confrontation. And it's interesting how he begins. You know, we would think, well, you need to confront somebody with some error, some sin, some things they're doing that is detrimental to the welfare of the church. So let's, let's call him in on the carpet and let's read in the riot act. Why are you doing these things? Um, but Paul, interestingly enough, wants even his words of reproof to come in a way that's consistent with the gospel. Now we might say the gospel itself is consistent with reproof because the end of the gospel is our walking obediently, our walking in conformity to Christ and anything that is a detriment to that should be reproved. But yet even reproof should just have the flavor of the gospel about it. We shouldn't reprove the way the world reproves. What is the old uh, statement very common in the way we would think of the way we would approach things where people have done wrong and we're looking to get them right but you've got, you got to fight fire with fire don't you? You have to come at these opponents in the way they come at you so tackle them, take them on in this, uh, in this way uh, of aggressive um, takedown just bring them down because they're hurting the work of the church. Well, again, Paul has no problem giving a, a, a takedown of, of, of adversaries, but again, the gospel is at stake, and the gospel is the gospel of how God triumphs in weakness, how God has conquered through the sending of his son into the world who went to a Roman cross to die for our sins. It wasn't the <clears throat> military force of an army that Jesus raised and his disciples thought they were going to be leading. When they, get, got in, when they came into Jerusalem, that they were going to defeat the Romans with some kind of uh, military power that Jesus would sanction. No, nothing like that. He went to the cross to die for our sins. He stoops in weakness that he might be raised in power. And so Paul begins with his entreaty in chapter 10 and verse 1 by saying, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you while I, when I am away. And of course that uh, feeds into the idea that the Corinthians had that his physical presence was weak, but his letters were bold. He's going to talk about that. But the point is, it's fine to be weak in the midst of people when there's no need to be strong. When there's no need to be uh, reproving and rebu- rebuking. and uh, But even in reproof and rebuke, it should still be with something of the meekness and gentleness of Christ that informs our minds and hearts. Uh, Paul writes to the Galatians, uh, if any brother is overtaken in a trespass, he says you to go to him and reprove him with a spirit of gentleness. There's to be the meekness and gentleness of Christ that characterizes the way we administer reproof to our brothers and sisters. 
It's not to read them the riot act. It's not to fire, fight fire with fire. It's not to um, aggressively just look to um, uh, meet the matter. It, no, meekness and gentleness should uh, inform us so that we don't lose our brothers. And it's not just a tactical thing. It's a gospel thing. It's, it's mimicking. It's, it's imitating the Lord Jesus. And in fact, the words that Paul uses are the very words that Jesus uses in the Gospels. The only time that I'm aware that Jesus speaks words in which he calls attention to himself, where he self-identifies and says, this is what I'm like, is in the exhortation uh, and the call to come unto me, all who are laboring and are heavy laden. He says, I will give you rest and come and take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and gentle in heart and you will find rest to your souls. And and, you know, when you think about it, uh, the weary and uh, oppressed, uh, those that are uh, beaten and battered by the world, beaten and battered by even our religious attempts to find peace with God in some other way than Christ, um, we can have a real sense of the futility of life, the futility of ourselves and um, um, just a real bad attitude about what life's like, what we're like and you know we might hear this man who is a miracle worker, this man who seems to have it all together he's calling us to come unto him why would he want us? why would he want anything to do with me? I mean look at me, look at what I am look at what he is, look at the disparity between what I'm like and what Jesus is like you might feel that's, that's impossible. I don't feel comfortable in his presence at all. And Jesus encourages even the weak and the heavy laden to say, it's okay to come to me. You're not going to get rejected. You're not going to get reproved. You're not going to get kicked away. You're not going to be disregarded. You're going to be welcomed. I'm meek and lowly in heart. And such people like you I've come for. I've come not to um, call the righteous but sinners to repentance and so Jesus self-identifies as meek and and lowly in heart and you shall find rest to your souls and so many of the exhortations of the Apostle Paul use these words like meekness and gentleness and lowliness and the key issue here is that this does not give the picture of weakness meekness is not weakness and you know the the grace of meekness or the Uh, and gentleness. I think both of them, I think especially the Greek word for meekness, was used in the Greek language not to express a virtue, but to express a vice. This is what you must never be. Real men are not meek. (laughs) Meekness and weakness. as that Casper Milk Toast kind of person that uh, um, people deride. In the ancient world, in the Greek world, that's what they did. They derided such people as somehow not having sufficient courage not being really men in the sense of what manliness they think would entail. But uh, I think Jesus comes to redefine what uh, true masculinity is, what true meekness is, um, and that it's not something that's a vice, it's a virtue. It's something that he himself demonstrates. Uh, He could come to crush us like bugs because he is the Lord of all. And he is filled with power and glory and majesty as the God of all creation, uh, but yet he comes to us incarnate in a virgin, uh, laid in a manger. Um, all these uh, 
among us is one who serves. Among us is one who doesn't have a place to lay his head. He comes and he, as Paul says, humbles himself, become obedient unto, unto, unto death, even the death of the cross. He goes to a criminal's execution. We just heard about the state of Oklahoma. There have 75, 25 people that they would have killed by, by lethal injection if they had not called a stop to it because of problems in the things that they were given the, the people. I mean, it took like 25 minutes of a guy writhing in pain for some guy to die a while back. So they said, well, let's put a moratorium on these kinds of uh, lethal injections and so we get a better way to do it and uh, I think they came up with a better way of doing it well we got 25 guys now on death row that in the course I think of a couple of months are all supposed to uh, all supposed to um, um, die and what's the, oh yeah that, 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 that's Jesus I mean the God they executed the other day he claims to have found Christ he claims to have become a Christian and uh, I would think of you know and he he killed. He, he, the story is he killed who, a friend of his, and he killed him because he was on drugs, and he killed him because uh, of drug money. He wanted fifty dollars from the guy, and the guy wouldn't give it to him. And so, in a state of whatever he was on and with drugs, he, he killed the guy. And um, now, some twenty somewhat years later, he says he found Christ. He says he uh, is a new man. Um, and I think he was thinking of him. What comfort if he in fact was a Christian? He could take in the fact that Jesus came to identify with sinners and identify with sinners in the kind of state and condition he is in. He is under the, the condemnation of the state. Jesus came under the condemnation as a state of the state as a common criminal. And what a repentant thief or murderer would have in the way of comfort in a Christ who receives the kind of people that he is. And uh, again, that's an extreme state and condition. But all of us are sinners. All of us are rebels. All of us have no place in the presence of Christ, we would think, by nature. And Jesus comes to us in whatever condition we're in, whatever situation we're in, whatever our sin problems and issues have been, and he comes to us and says, I came for you, and I've identified with you. I came under sentence of death from the Roman authorities and was executed in the way they execute criminals. Uh, that's the kind of mercy and, and, and meekness and lowliness and love that Jesus exercises to the fallen sons of men coming into the world to do what he did uh, for our salvation. And it's in what he did for our salvation that he conquers and he rules and he's exalted and given the name that's above every name. He conquers through weakness and meekness and gentleness and love. And so Paul says when he comes to entreat uh, the Corinthians with regard to these uh, problem people, these troublemakers at Corinth, uh, his exhortation comes loaded with gospel reality and gospel implication. I entreat you not as an imperial apostle filled with a sense of my own importance. Paul could have had a real sense of his own importance because he's called to be Christ's minister to the Gentiles. Uh, he has a Jeremiah-like ministry. As Jeremiah was made a prophet to the nations, Paul says, in the same way that uh, Jeremiah says, it was before my mother's womb I was called, Paul says, it was from my mother's womb I was called. And I was made to be an apostle to the nations as Jeremiah was made a prophet to the nations. This is worldwide national implications and I'm Christ's point man for all this. What a sense of self-importance he might have gained as a result of that. 
And of course, he has a sense of his own importance for the sake of the ministry that he's given to do, but also the sense of personal meekness and gentleness representing the face of Christ to this congregation. There's no need to get haughty. There's no need to get mean. There's no need to get scolding. There's no need to get on your high horse and tell these people, get yourselves into line. I'm Christ's apostle and this is it. And I say that because it seems to me we've got so much Christian ministry that gets just that, that, that haughty and that proud and that self-absorbed and that self-centered and that, that un-Christ-like. And Paul's an example of Christ-like reproof. I mean, I'm a, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who am humble when face to face with you. Why should I not be? <laughs> if I've come among a people who've embraced the gospel, they've received Christ, they've uh, given evidence of uh, being the called of the Lord. Um, I was among you, he says, in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom in chapter 2 and, and uh, chapter, the first uh, letter in chapter 2, uh, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would stand not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Well, if the power of God is being demonstrated through Paul's ministry, and people are being gathered into the church, and people are being hungry to receive the ministry of the word, why would you need to be mean-spirited? Why would you mean need to be anything other than humble? Humble before God that he would use you in such ways to bring people to the knowledge of his grace and salvation. Humble before the people of God because Christ humbled himself and took the form of a servant and came in the likeness of men. So he's just demonstrating Christ-like humility. And I do that when face-to-face with you. But bold toward you while I'm away. Now my letters have been bold because I've had to write in terms of correction. I've had to answer questions you've given me that uh, evidence that many things are not as they should be. And so, yes, I'm going to write with a sense of boldness. This is what you need to do. I've already made my judgment. Uh, when you gather together, here's what you're to do with that incestuous man. I don't have to come among you. Uh, I'm telling you in the letter exactly what to do. So there's a certain boldness of the letter that the letters require. He says, I beg you of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. You see, that's the, uh, that's the argument. Paul's walking according to the flesh because look at how inconsistent he is. Sometimes he's this way, sometimes he's that way. In his letters he's bold and strong and confident and makes assertions and tells you what to do. When he's with us in the flesh, he is weak, it would appear. He's, he's, he's humble um, before you. And, and Paul says, that's how it should be. It's exactly how it should be. Why should I have to be bold with such confidence um, that these people think I should be having when you're obedient? When you are when you are reciprocating the love with which I've loved you and you're loving me in return and you are uh, an obedient congregation you see the whole purposes of the letters was that when he got there there wouldn't have to be the need to correct there wouldn't have to be the need to bold the letters were to prepare, prepare the way yes for the benevolence ministry to Jerusalem that was part of it perhaps prepare the way for future ministry of bringing the gospel to regions where the gospel has not been proclaimed but there would be no need when he came among them to be reproving them and rebuking them and putting all these things in order that's what the letters were for 
<laughs> and they were using the fact that Paul was writing to say, well, look at him. He's, uh, hey, look at him. How confident he sounds. How assertive he sounds. Well, the letters for that very purpose that when he comes among them, there wouldn't have to be the kind of boldness that these people think is a matter of uh, walking according to the flesh and inconsistent. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we walk in our bodies, we live in our bodies, we carry out our lives in our bodies. So that's flesh in that sense. has to do with our embodied life. He says in verse 3, for though we walk according to the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. And he tells the Ephesians uh, that we fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, the spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. So it's a spiritual warfare we're called to engage in. And we do not wage this spiritual war with fleshly tools. We don't come into Corinth uh, mounted upon a steed with an army following us to ensure that the obedience of the people would be um, achieved. This is not Islam, with Muhammad coming with his uh, armed forces into a place to get people to submit. You know, is- Islam offers submission. That's what it means. Christianity offers humility and, gos- and-, and gospel love. It-, it puts that on offer. A God who humbles himself to come in the form of human flesh, to die the death of the cross, to uh, bring salvation. It, it, it's, it's a message of, of love and not imperial power. Paul says we're not waging war on human terms. We're waging war on spiritual terms with spiritual tools and spiritual weapon, weapons. Weapons actually are, are tools. could be either, either one. So he says the weapons or the tools, verse 4, of our warfare are not of the flesh. We have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now he's using military language. He's using the kind of language that you would use to describe an army entering a city, looking to take down its fortifications, looking to take down its strongholds. But it's not literal cities. And it's not physical fortifications. And it's not physical weapons that we're using. They're the spiritual weapons of divine truth. It's the spiritual weapons of the gospel. All the weaponry that's spoken about in Ephesians chapter uh, 6. The, 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 the shield of faith and the armor, uh, the breastplate of righteousness. And the feet shod with the preparation of the readiness of the gospel of peace. Uh, it's the sword of the spirit which is the word of God it's uh, all prayer it's the spiritual weaponry in which our our battle is waged our warfare is engaged in the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but of divine power to destroy the fortifications of human sin to have the power of truth go into every place where lies and deceit abound, to have the power of God's love enter into every place where hatred and enmity and discord and uh, hostility reigns in the hearts of people. Um, So we destroy arguments. 
We come against arguments, human arguments that would seek to justify rebellion and sin and indifference to the living God. Look to arguments that would look to uphold their idolatrous ways and practices. We come to destroy every lofty opinion. We're against arguments. We're against opinions. We're against things that you, people's thoughts that are governed and dominated by sin. And we're looking to cast those things down. All these arguments and lofty opinions that are raised against the knowledge of God, that's what we're looking to destroy. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. But again, that's a battle that's won by argument, by setting forth the gospel, by preaching God's truth. It's not something that is looking to compel people to become Christians on the pain of death or upon the pain of imprisonment or upon the pain of taxation or upon the pain of losing their citizenship or any such thing in which you, in the history of the, of the church unfortunately has been done with people who have other opinions and what the, the ruling authorities and powers say are the right opinions. We win the war by the power of the gospel to destroy those things that stand in opposition to the knowledge of God. It's a spiritual war. That's what we're engaged in. And our battle is to bring every thought captive to obey Christ. That includes even the way we reprove that it is in a Christ-like fashion and way. Be ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Well, how does he punish every disobedience? What's the way in which disobedience gets punished? Are people put in prison? Are they locked up? Are they made to wear monitors so that we know exactly where they are every day of the week? No. It's church discipline. That's what in chapter, the first letter he does. There's the punishment of excommunication, of casting people out from the uh, fellowship of the recognized people of God. That's Those are the tools, those are the weaponry that God has given us. The reformers said the, the, the weapons were given the, the marks of the church is, is the preaching of the gospel is the proclamation of God's truth as well as the administration of the sacraments and church discipline. That's an important element in the armament that Christ has given us for the purposes of bringing the church to um, completion of obedience he says that's the end the end is obedience is complete there's the completion of obedience on your part that's what we're working towards we're working towards it in godly and Christian ways is that clear? I know I've kind of gone over that maybe ad nauseum for you a little bit too (laughs) much emphasis but um, I think it's a powerful passage to tell us exactly what our business is as the church what our tools are as the church how we are to um, engage in the progress of the Christian gospel to the winning of the world. It's not by compel- compelling people. It's not by uh, using state uh, um, uh, power. It's by th- it's by the arguments of truth. It's by God's word. It's by prayer. It's by church discipline. It's by the things that Christ has given us for the completion of His people in obedience. And now in verse 7, he does begin to address um, 
the enemies or the opponents? Yes. I was going to say, if we sure. church discipline where you know, we're to punish people, even that has gospel implications to it too, that the person would, would see the sin and repent. Yes, yes. Yeah, the hope is the reclamation of the person disciplined. Uh, uh, meeting the disapproval of the community, they would know that's reflective of the heart and mind of God. And uh, ultimate repentance would be the end of our church discipline. It's not out of spite. It's not to be mean. It's not to be, well, you know, we're doing this because we hate you. It's something that's done out of love. And again, if it's not being done in love, there's something not quite right with it. You know, if there's meanness and harshness and arrogance and, and bitterness, if that enters into the process of any act of the church... Uh, again those are things defined as the works of the flesh which are manifest that's not part of the fruit of the spirit that's not what Christians uh, are to um, are to lead with in their relationships with other people it's the graces of the Christian life it's the, it's the, 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 the fruit of the working and operation of the Holy Spirit within our hearts and within the heart, life and heart of the congregation When Paul begins to take up some of the objectors and arguments of his opponents, and he just begins with, look what's before your eyes. You know, we can be so influenced by what other people are saying that we don't just look with our own eyes. Somebody tells us, don't believe what you see, believe what I tell you. Uh, Don't listen to that person. Look with your own eyes. Paul says, look what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so are we also. And people make the boast, well, we're, we're the Lord's. He sent us. We're his special emissaries. We've come from Jerusalem. We've come from Peter. We've come from, they give their credentials. That's what they claim. Well, we have every right to make the equal claim. That just as he is Christ, or he says he's of Christ, so are we also. We came to you in the name of Christ. We came to you preaching the gospel of Christ. We came to you seeking to honor Christ. Central to everything in our lives was the word of Christ and the the will of Christ. And Paul says, look what's before your eyes. Perhaps remember what we were when we were in your midst. How Christ was central to everything we did and everything we said. He says, for even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave us, and again, our authority is not self-generated. We didn't take it upon ourselves to become apostles one day. We weren't just sitting around and uh, you know, doing whatever the people in the ancient world did for recreation, and then this occurred to us, we ought to be apostles of Christ. And Paul was on a mission to destroy the church, and it's Jesus who called him. It's Jesus who appeared to him. It's Jesus who commissioned him. It's Jesus who gave him uh, his authority. But notice what kind of authority Paul sees that he has. Again, it's not authority on his own. Or it's not authority to achieve his own ends. It's authority that the Lord gave for building you up and not tearing you down. And I've emphasized in the past that I think Paul saw himself as a modern Jeremiah at least in his day it was a modern Jeremiah that his ministry was fashioned after 
much of what he saw in Jeremiah. Uh, the whole matter of being called uh, before he was conceived in his mother's womb. The fact that he was called to be a messenger to the nations. This all comes from the book of Jeremiah. But what else comes from the book of Jeremiah, particularly in that opening chapter, that might sort of accord with Paul's sense of what his, what his authority has been given for? You can look at the language. His authority was given for building you up and not for tearing you down. Remember anything in Jeremiah chapter 1? Well, those of you who came in the evening service, you should, you, you should get this. You should have this, but I'll remind you. Turn back to Jeremiah chapter 1. Remember there were six things that God told Jeremiah that he was going to do? Four of them were sort of negative, and two of them were really good. And it's funny, in the book of Jeremiah, this is something that gets repeated again and again and again uh, in the book. Um, uh, these words. Thank you. <laughs> so here, could have answered my question, Tim, if you turned here previously. See that I've set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. What to do? Well, to pluck up and break down, to destroy and to overthrow. That's what was needed in the day in which Judah and Jerusalem were under the judgment of God. They were to be destroyed. They were to be plucked up, broken down, destroyed, and overthrown. That's uh, four things of uh, Jeremiah's mission to the nation that spoke of God's intention to bring utter destruction and devastation and utter captivity. But yet, even in the midst of a book like Jeremiah that was so much of a downer in terms of judgment that God would bring, there were yet these positive things. And again, this gets repeated again and again and again in some six or seven clear references to this language. To build and to plant. To build and to plant. This language of edification. Building up. Raising up something. Is to edify. Is to build up. And then the plant, that's the, the, the uh, agricultural term parallel to the construction term of building up, you plant in a vineyard. Uh, there's two things that the Old Testament and New Testament gives us a, a, a picture of what the people of God are to be. We're to be like a building built up, and we're to be like, like a temple, uh, and we're to also to be like a field, uh, the field in which God... Um, brings forth a fruitful harvest. And so uh, Jeremiah's work is to build the nation back up and to restore the harvest once again and to bring fruitfulness to the nation once more. And Paul says, our ministry is centered in not tearing down. We're not out to be tearing down. Again, we're not going to the nation saying, 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed. That's Jonah's message. That's not Paul's message. Paul's message is a message of reconciliation. Again, chapter 5, that's what he says, that we've been given a ministry of reconciliation. We've been given a message of reconciliation, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing to us our trespasses. His message is a message of building up. Building up the church. I will build my church, Jesus says. I will edify my church. I will. He's in the work of construction. 
the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Paul's in the work of construction. We are God's laborers. You are God's building. You are God's field. We're working in God's field. We're working in God's building. Building up the temple. Building up the church. Building up the people of God. And the authority we have is an authority not just to tear down. Not as an authority to discipline, yes. But the ultimate purpose is not to dishearten those who have no need to be disheartened. It's not to tear into people without cause or without reason. And so Paul says our main ministry is building up. Building you up. Again, verse 6. Be ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. It's the completion of obedience. In Colossians, it's making every man perfect in Christ. It's uh, in Ephesians, so we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, um, to come to the fullness of the stature of Christ. Uh, We're building you up. We're seeking to see the work of God advance in the world, in you and through you, in this positive way. And so our authority is not to tear you down. Our authority is to build you up. Again, it's not doesn't mean that there is not to be reproof and entreaty and exhortation and all the rest. But that's not to be the, the staple diet of the ministry. That stuff we need it needs to come into play. But um, we need to be careful the way we exercise that. Over in the book of 1 Thessalonians, um, it is interesting that Paul makes a, a clear distinction that not every thing that uh, leaders do is meant for everyone. We have to make discernment. We have to make distinctions. Look at uh, chapter 5 and um, verse 12. It says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, who are over you in the Lord, who admonish you. Okay, these are people who have uh, authority in the church, and they have an authority to admonish you. They can admonish you through the Word of God. They can admonish you in um, uh, public ways, private ways as well. To esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers... And now Paul begins to particularize to the work of the church and members to one another. Admonish the idol. Don't go around admonishing everybody. (laughs) Everybody does not need admonition. You don't come to church, uh, I think some preachers come to church thinking, well I got a church, a bunch of worldly people, they don't get it right with God. Uh, I'm here to just call them on the carpet week after week after week and to cry their evil and their sin. Uh, No. No. Not everybody needs admonition. (laughs) You have someone in need of admonition? Do it. Administer admonition to those who need it. Admonish the idol. Or the disorderly or the undisciplined is the meaning of the word. Encourage the faint-hearted. Someone's in the churches, faint-hearted. Well, encourage them. Seek to, to, to lift them up. If somebody's floating in the clouds, you, know, you have no reason to go, hey, I, I, I want to encourage you. 
Well, yeah, well, I think you're the one that needs encouragement looking down on us. I mean, you just don't encourage or need to encourage someone who obviously is uh, just uh, on some sort of mountaintop uh, wonderful experience with God. But the, the faint-hearted, encourage them. Come alongside them to help them. That's what it means. It's parakaleo. You come alongside to encourage the faint-hearted. And then you need to help the weak and be patient with them all. Uh, patience, forbearance, that's uh, like universal uh, medicine to be used. You know, that's kind of like uh, uh, you know, dr- drinking water. <laughs> you know, everybody needs to drink water every day. So that's something you do every day. Well, patience is something you do every day with everyone. Um, there's long suffering and there's patience. Um, but you do the work to the people that need the medicine. You apply the other medicine. Everybody needs water. Patience applies to everybody. But not everybody needs admonition. Not everybody needs the kind of encouragement that the weak and faint-hearted need. Not everyone needs the help that the weak need. But give what is needed by all. That's what the church is to be doing. And Paul, again, sees his authority as a minister of Jesus to be an authority that's given largely in the work of building people up. Paul says, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, again, here's the opponents. This is what they're saying about Paul. They're saying his letters are weighty and strong. Man, the guy can write. I can write a letter. He can just put it out there and uh, you know, just tell people what they need to be doing and make it very clear and concise. But uh, his bodily presence is weak. Look at when he came among us and uh, then he left. Because it was obvious the problem was not going to be bettered by his presence. That painful visit that he mentions back in chapter 2. Uh, I don't think this is referring to the time he was among them for 18 months preaching the gospel, but I think it was that other visit when he came just for a brief time and realized that this is not going well, uh, so he's going to leave. He goes back to Macedonia and he sends Titus in his place to get the thing done. They used that as an opportunity to criticize him. They didn't seek to find, well, why did Paul leave? What was his agenda? What was his reason? They don't even care. It's a weakness that they can exploit. That's what they're concerned to do, to exploit any and every weakness they could find in Paul to basically tarnish his reputation. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Now Paul himself says when he came among them, he didn't come with excellency of speech and of wisdom. Because he wasn't looking to mimic the orators and the rhetoricians of, of ancient Greece. And they put a great uh, deal of, um, of importance to the, be able, the ability to just be persuasive with their, their speech. And um, you know, we have to be careful of that. Because Paul says the problem is that you can persuade people with an argument that uh, you have given, you've carefully crafted it, you've learned the principles of rhetoric, you know what tends to persuade people, you know how to get into people's hearts and minds just because of the way naturally people have learned uh, to sell, you know... I'm taking, I just got in, I just ordered um, cod liver oil. (laughs) 
and the good help but think but cod liver oil. Was that what I was talking about when I said to you, got this here to, to sell this? This is the cure all for everything. This is going to take care of all your problems. And I put on a WC Field sort of voice to be the huckster, to be the kind of person that's looking to sell you something. And I can sell you something with all kinds of promises. And then some guy comes after me. He says, he's a better salesman than I am. And he tells you, well, stop using that product and start using mine. Well, that's not what we're doing in the work of the kingdom. We're not looking to be hucksters, looking to sell people on things. Uh, We're looking, Paul says, to see the demonstration of the spirit and the power. That your faith wouldn't stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We're out to see conversions that God does that God brings by the power of his spirit working in human hearts. That's what our concern is. It's not our power to argue you into agreeing with us. Talented salesmen do that all the time. But we don't want you to have buyer's regret about the gospel. We want your receiving of the gospel to be the result of the working of the spirit of God. That God has come to persuade you through the power of Christ's gospel. So they, they exploited that. His bodily presence is weak, his speech is of no account. And Paul says, let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. At least we have the capability of doing when present when needed. If it's needed, we'll do it. But we hope it's not needed. Why would anybody want to engage in putting out fires when no fires exist? You end up starting them yourselves or doing things that cause fires to exist in the church. He says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves where they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another there without understanding. Again, Paul says, we have to see ourselves in the light of God, in the light of Christ, in the light of the gospel, in light of the things that are of maximum, maximum importance and not just what others think, not just to minister to Uh, keep up our appearances before other people or to live so as to keep up our appearances before other people Uh, again people's opinions might be helpful and good when they're biblical and right but not every one of their opinions is true and right so don't make people's opinion to be the standard the standard for your life is God's word the revelation that God gives of himself in scripture. Well, Paul has more to say to us, and particularly the things I think that also look to engage the Corinthians into the life of his own ministry, but we'll look to take that up again uh, next week. I hope at least what we looked at thus far is a good start to get through this material. I'm just hoping maybe in, in two weeks we'll be done with the letter of 2 Corinthians. Again, I don't want to speed uh, uh, go through this with too great a speed, but uh, sufficient pace in which to gain a sense of what the argument is. So I hope this has been clear. If you have any questions, uh, feel free to ask me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for Paul's letter and the unbearing of his heart, uh, the perspective he has on ministry. That uh, We're thankful that these problems happened in the Corinthian church, that we would have this letter. It gives us so much guidance and so much awareness of the things that are truly important. So we pray that we would be, um, again, engaging in our lives as individuals, our ministry as a church, not in the light of people's opinions or in the light of the the flesh and uh, fleshy arguments, not in the light of the tools that people use and their arguments and reasonings with one another, 
but the gospel will be central, be the for, at the forefront of all of our thinking, of all of our reasoning, of all of our understanding, of all of our living, of all of our laboring. So we ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless us as your people as we greet one another this morning. Bless us as we enter into the morning hour of worship. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.